1: Welcome to 3, a part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy off the back of the Cincinnati Men's Final, which was just one of the most incredible matches I've ever seen in so many ways. Longest Masters 1000 Final ever, three hours, 49 minutes. Djokovic takes it in a third set tiebreak. He also saved a match point in the second set tiebreak. The, the the amount of twists and turns, Joel. Uh, I mean, that's what really stood out to me about the match is that every time you thought it was going one direction, it suddenly jerked the other way.
2: It was amazing, and the quality. It's, what's interesting is that the person who took the lead, it's not like that who had the lead. His quality just dropped as much as they just kept raising the bar on each other. It was just incredible tennis, incredible shot making and movement. And physicality added into the fact that it was pretty much a hundred degrees on that court. I mean, it was muggy and sticky and just an incredible, incredible effort from both of them.
3: I was watching the match with my husband, who's a little bit more of a casual fan, and when Djokovic had the opportunity to serve it out in the third set, I said who will win this match? And he said, "Oh, Djokovic will win. You know, he'll he'll hold serve." And then from there, it was almost like another match played out. Um, the remainder of of the match, it was incredible. It was one of, if not the best, three set match I think I've ever seen. Uh, it was right up there with their um, match that they played in in Madrid, which I think was like over three hours and 30 minutes yep and just a same set scores there was a seven five set and two seven six sets um so it's just incredible that this rivalry has emerged at a time when I think tennis really needs it and it's come at the end of Djokovic's career, so it's like he's going to go out with a real um, a apl- plum, um, and and fireworks to uh, get this young guy come in and and give him just just some history setting incredible matches.
2: Well, and what's great about his the rivalry; it's instantly glorious. You know, there's no there's no moment where the the veteran is. The first two or three times dispatching the youngster or the opposite. It's like from the start. I mean, every match they've played has been incredible quality and drama. They've now played four. And it's just some uh, tremendous tennis. Yeah, just just tremendous.
1: Where does this one fit in? Before we get into the specifics of the match, let's, let's talk about the rivalry. And Amy, there were certainly fireworks for the semifinal from Novak's perspective. That was definitely a part of that. Uh, but in terms of the Djokovic-Alcaraz rivalry this year, now they've played on all three surfaces, and it kind of went the opposite direction of what certainly I thought, but I think most people thought, which is that clay would help Alcaraz, grass would help Djokovic. It reversed. They they play on this kind of fast, bouncy hard court, but I guess the common theme is every single time it's looked like they're kind of right there with each other. Uh, but I guess the fact that this isn't the U.S. Open means that it doesn't really feel like a punctuation mark on their series in 2023.
3: Yeah, it, it, this tees up for the U.S. Open. Of course, there's a lot of work that has to be done. I think you know before we get too much into the specifics, I know we're we're still talking very broadly, but. Alcaraz did his hand did start to cramp up at the end of this match. So if this had been a best of five match, um, there are real concerns about you know whether he would have uh, the physicality um, to to finish the match. So it, it's a real mystery, and um, I think if they can get to the final and it can be another you know chance for something like this. Then we're all in for a real treat.
2: Well, in these four matches, as you asked where these fit in, I the um the history literature person in me started to think, okay, well, the first one was like the the Madrid, that was like the intro, the intro story. Then we had the suspended, the the one in France that was kind of like the the work in progress that wasn't quite completed. You know, where, so you got Wimbledon, that's an epic. You know, how do you like your classics? Do you like them? And do you like your do you like a big Bronto steak, like a five cent match? This one had a tidiness to it that's very appealing. You know what I mean? It's kind of like no one would think they didn't get maximum value out of this kind of match. All of us. I mean, we we were texting, I was texting with friends and thinking, wow, this is a pretty good value and quality over almost four hours. So yeah, we, we hope to see something like this at a U.S. Open final, but wow, this is just so, so good and so interesting to see all the different shots and tactics. I actually
1: thought we were in for a disappointing match. I thought that it was going to be similar to Paris, where it's like, a- a- after the match, we can we can analyze it, we can talk about it, but the, at the end of the day, somebody failed physically, and that is that. And I thought we were looking at a match like that, which nobody really roots for, right? We want them to be right. physically at their best so that they can show their tennis. But Novak, after going up 4-2 in the first set, just hit a wall. Uh, the heat really got the best of him. It was, you know, 95 degrees. Djokovic had played every single match in the lead up to the tournament. Uh, not in the lead up, or during the tournament, in the lead up to the final at night. It was clearly just a shock to the system for mm-hmm. Novak. At least that's how I read it, Amy.
3: Yeah, and I started Googling, you know, does does – we know that as people get older, their tolerance for cold goes down. But what about their tolerance for heat? So I started like Googling that. But I I really think that it was really more about what you said, um, that it was a shock to the system. He had not played all the night, he had played all the night matches. And, um, you know, what could he have done to better prepare himself go out and play in the heat of the day. I mean, he doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to wreck himself going into the U.S. Open. So I think he did the best he could. And as soon as the sun went down, new Novak.
2: Well, that's a great point. Also, he hadn't played Toronto last week, so he didn't have as much match, whereas Alcaraz had played all three setters all week in Cincinnati. He'd also played in Toronto. So, yeah, it's it's that whole tennis thing of calibrating, how much you play and your fitness and the uncertainty and then the occasion and the nerves and the opponents, all of those things face, you know, factor in.
1: I mean, there's a reason why so many of the American pros, at least, they all train in Florida because they understand the benefit of that. They they get that when it's 95 degrees, uh, Coco Golf, who won her first Masters 1000 today, she's not going to have an issue with that because she trains in Florida. Uh, So there's definitely something to be said and kind of this irreplaceable thing where if you just get used to it, you're used to it. And yeah, and Novak wasn't. This has happened before in his career, but it it was normally when he was younger. However, I was also at uh, the US Open semifinal against Kane Ishikori when Novak was really in his prime and the heat got the better of him on that day in New York. So it's something that I think can pretty much happen to everyone. We've seen it happen to Novak sometimes. Uh, but as you said, Amy, when the sun went down, when the sun disappeared, Novak appeared. Um, and the
3: it just the the early part of the match, we were talking about how the script had flipped, how in the French Open, It was Alcaraz who was really struggling, and now it was Novak who was struggling physically, but he's the master at managing things. You know, he took a break. It was all within the rules. He took a break between sets. Um, At one point, he called a physio. He managed it. He worked his way through it.
2: It was impressive. It was so, you know, you talk about the training things. Jimmy Connors told me once in the St. Louis humidity, his grandfather who trained him had him wear a rubber suit as well. In the training. So you get you would recreate that feeling of that Midwest style humidity. And uh, you know, Novak, that's a great point, Amy, you made about maybe when it got a little um a little darker and uh you know less sunny. But Novak, I it's just I was out of words for some of those rallies, weren't you guys just kind of seeing the versatility, Novak's volleying. Alcaraz is countering there are a few points where Alcarez, all right, who needs long points here? Serve in volley, you're done. Here, here I come on the return. You're done, boom.
1: Yeah, well, I think that was that kept him in the match before he, because it was gradual. It wasn't just he snapped a finger and suddenly he was physically okay. He just got a little better and a little better and a little better. And then by the third set, I thought he was okay, um, or, or really the end of the second set, he was doing running um, as well. He needed his serve and his volleying to get him to that point where Alcaraz where he was still within touching distance and then alcaraz had this patchy play for you know three games he made like seven unforced errors or seven or eight unforced errors in a span of three games to surrender the break back to novak and then suddenly it was four or five in the second set again which by the way that's the kind of thing where i think if there's one moment in the match where we saw the experience difference that was it i just don't think if Djokovic were in Alcaraz's shoes, I don't think he ever makes that mistake. He knows that you, against an opponent who's struggling physically, you can't lose your focus and have a have that rough patch of play and let them back in. Especially knowing the effects of, you know, the whatever kind of hydration and medication that Novak was ingesting. And the sun going down, like, you have to keep your foot on the gas there. And Alcaraz had a blip. I just think he got comfortable and lost his focus. That was my read on it.
3: Well,
2: I also think it has to do with their views of how to go, how the game is played. And remember the the Novak model. I think is a little based on the, I would call it the uh, the Chris Everett Ivan Lendl. I'm not gonna miss. Like if you look at tiebreakers, you probably look if you if you got them each talking Novak and Carlos about their tiebreaker philosophy. And Novak is based, I'm I'm not missing. The net's lower in the middle. I'm hitting cross court. I'm hitting deep. These are the things I rely on. And it's not offense or defense. It's just this is how I apply pressure. And I think Alcaraz is a little bit more in the Federer, Pete Sampras mind. I I need to I'm going to press things. I need to press the action because this is the personality, the hard work. Wa- However, his view of the game is like I need to kind of make something happen here, and then that can sometimes lend itself. Particularly, he's still young in these stages, in these patches, right? In these patches of either options or concentration, because he's he's looking to create points in a different way than Novak, very different way than Novak whereas Novak is going to, he's going to hunker down. That's why he's been so good in so many tiebreakers. And again, as he was today.
3: I thought there were moments of immaturity on the part of Alcaraz. Um, in, within some of the rallies, Baseline to baseline, depth, 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 angle, angle, angle. And then there were a couple of very key points where Alcaraz was the first to gun it, pull the trigger, slap at it. Where Novak is, we've been watching him long enough. He's not going to do that. He is only going to pull the trigger when he's sure, typically.
2: Well, mm-hmm. um,
3: also, I think there was a moment of uh, immaturity when, during the changeover, he hit the water cooler or whatever it was that he hit. He hurt his hand. He had to tape it. Same hand that ended up cramping up. I mean, just and and, and normally he's so positive, but that was that was a mental lapse there. Um, so it, you know, if he hadn't had those moments of immaturity, he might've pulled out the match, but, uh, these are this mental toughness is what makes Novak so great.
2: I'm going to parse the little difference between the immaturity of the emotional thing with the rackets and then the mid rally shot decisions, because <laughs> I think when he makes the, these are the things that makes Carlos Alcaraz an electric player. And he, and, and sometimes he's going to miss, he's going to miss in a way that Novak, doesn't Novak Novak even the young Novak had never had wasn't playing like that because Novak's view of the game was so much built on kind of that that airtight model and Alcaraz is not Alcaraz's game is not built on the the airtight model of what I I mean it's not again it's not defense it's not offense it's just it's a different thing it's a little more like I said in the Sampras Federer uh world yeah. uh, I need to make something happen here yeah I get it sometimes one of these shots is gonna fly wide Gonna fly into the net because I'm probably pulling the trigger a little, little. I don't quite have the the I, I, the part of the court. I don't quite have the positioning, or my technique isn't quite there where it should be, and it's gonna find the net. Novak, Novak, you could see for he was not taught to even think about that.
1: Yeah, but I, I'm a little bit more with Amy that it's a it's a mistake, and I I understand. I also agree with you that it's his nature, but. I think he needs to fight his nature in those moments because with Federer, and it's a little bit different, I think, than with Federer and Sampras because Pete is doing what Pete needs to do, right? If he's serving volleying, if he's chipping, charging, if he's going big on his forehand, that's, that's how he needs to play. Alcaraz is such a phenomenal defender, the fastest player in tennis, there are moments where he is giving djokovic a gift by going for the miracle you know trigger pull in a way that i don't think is necessary and i think that he'll get it out of his system at some point
2: i agree i think it's
3: about i think it's about court position for me anyway um you don't pull the trigger when you're that deep in the court or you're you know well of course you can you can try and sometimes he does and it's almost like You know, anyone who's ever played tennis understands that if you hit a really great shot from way deep in the court or an impossible position, it's almost addictive and it can bait you into doing it again. But we're talking about percentage tennis and court position that I thought, okay, maybe immature is not the right word. Maybe it's undisciplined.
2: Yeah, well, I think all of that is interesting. It's going to see how it evolves. But again, mostly correct. Absolutely. But then the super geniuses, I mean, Steph Curry, what are you doing shooting from 28 feet, from 32 feet? Well, I have it. So the question becomes, and this is what's going to be fun about watching Alcaraz in the years to come. Are you doing? It's not reckless if you own it, but if you don't own it, and then you're coming up against someone as airtight and buttoned up as Novak, it's going to look exactly right. It's going to look immature. It's going to look undisciplined. And you're going to have those fractures that are going to happen to you where it's not going to look that way against Hercotch. Against Herkach it's going to look like the guy's hitting the shot he's been taught to hit, that he's trained to hit. So it's it's going to be interesting to see how we view and perceive Alcaraz's error point winning ratio and mix of things. You know, for example, taking second serves and ripping returns and coming in. Um, for some, for Novak, that would appear because he hasn't done that that much. Yeah, Novak, look at Novak. He's he's going for it. Alcaraz, he has that. He has that, and he's making it. So it's – again, he's – it's amazing. The guy's already won two majors, but we know his game is still raw. Is still – you know, think of what this guy's going to be playing like in four years.
1: Is there anything, Amy, that you think Novak did much better this time than uh, compared to Wimbledon?
3: I think he volleyed better. Yeah. Um, I mean, but <laughs> – we're kind of nitpicking because both those matches could have gone either way. They were exceptionally close. Um, you know, better, better uh, mental fortitude, maybe better defending in the closing arguments of the match.
2: I agree completely about the better volleying. And remember, Wimbledon—that was it's almost five hours long, and there were two six-one sets, I believe, in there, right? Or- was that right? So it's there yeah. you were know, these matches. This one was just kind of like nonstop, you know, nail biting time all around, just tight points. And I think I think a lot of his volleying did make a difference, and maybe made Alcaraz feel in the rallies that he had to go for more. That's what's so great about tennis that he had to go for more, because otherwise Novak would be coming to net. And Novak's volleys were really really good.
1: And that's one of the common themes. All the players that have given Alcaraz trouble these last two weeks and there have been a couple duplicates here where he's rematched guys but you know Tommy Paul and Hubert Hurkacz and Jordan Thompson and and Max Purcell certainly all these guys are really good volleyers and it never looked easy for Alcaraz all week long and Djokovic's even his serve and volley was really really key cuz Alcaraz moved back and like maybe we pick on Medvedev too much cuz we're like oh you're standing deep they're going to serve and volley but I mean, yes, that's been true. It's been an issue for Daniil in some matches, but this can happen to anyone. The deep return position has major benefits. It's being popularized, and you have to serve in volley against it. And here, you know, Novak was so proficient at doing that, even on the second serve. So, so that was massive. And well, I think in general, oh, that- by the way, Novak got more free points today than he did at Wimbledon. His, his serve, especially in the third set, was better.
3: I mean, Gil, you just said, you know, that a bunch of guys had success against Alcaraz or, or gave him a match um by volleying well. And Novak volleyed beautifully today. And Alcaraz volleys well. Oh, by the way. Let's all volley. How about it? You know, <laughs> let let's all work on those skills. Um, you know, the the major benefit of of taking a deep return position, okay. But I, I really think the the major benefit is learning to come forward and working on those skills, and that's something I think Medvedev should do.
2: Well, uh, to get back to Novak and Car, and uh, it's like you're, these guys are saying to Alcaraz, "I better do something to you, or else you're going to do something to me." Because Alcaraz can look for ways to grab control of the point from many, many spots on the court. So if you force him to hit passing shots, that that's a a little more of a compromised way to play. Um, that's Medvedev though. Medvedev's deal. I don't think. I don't think Medvedev has much um, ownership of his volley technique. Yeah. Of his volley technique. I mean, and he he knows that ought to be a good place to be, but he's kind of uh, what do I do up here, as opposed to some of these other players who we were talking we talked about.
1: I was saying let's not pick on Medvedev. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> we we do we do quite a bit. Uh, just because he's a fascinating player, he allows us to have these conversations. That's all.
2: Well, he's he's a little bit. If I may with him, he's a little bit in this transition period like like after the as the big three crested and new emerged, he's in this period. And he's definitely a contender. He's a great player. But the question is, what style? Like you look what Alcaraz has done to Medvedev of late. I mean it's such bad math for Medvedev. It's like, yeah. wait a second, Alcaraz is doing this. And so if you're Tommy Paul or Hurkacz playing Medvedev, you're thinking, Okay, here's sort of a thing. I might not be as good as Alcaraz, but this is a tactic. So it's gonna be to see how Medvedev ups his game in the months and years to come to vie with some of this new tactical model that's emerging.
1: Let's talk about the Alcaraz hand cramping it in the end. I mean, I think it ultimately decided that third set tiebreak when you look at it, you know, he had that that marathon rally which he had to basically bail out of with the two-handed forehand that looked really wacky. Uh, but then, you know, as it went on, I think, yes, he won three points in a row shortly thereafter. Uh, he just wasn't, you know, he missed two pretty easy forehand returns, and he missed a backhand return, so he just stopped making returns in play. And I, I have to think it was kind of weighing on his mind, and and regardless of how it feels, felt, rather, in his hand in the moment, I think that's a, a huge mental burden. And And there were some strange misses that I attribute to the cramping, Ah, uh, but i I give him a a total pass for it. I mean, I, I don't it doesn't elicit fitness questions for me. He's played six, three set matches in a row. it's ninety five degrees, fifty percent humidity. He's playing every day. I mean, coming into this match, you know, my prediction, a large part of my prediction, which was mostly wrong, but now it's like 10% right, is that Alcaraz was going to be tired for this final. And it was going to be really hard for him to play his best because of all the tennis he's played. So I'm almost pleasantly surprised with with how well he held up physically, even though it got him at the very, very end.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. I never had, you guys ever have a hand cramp? Yes. Yeah actually often my
3: hand I walked off the court (laughs) and my hand was like this and I couldn't I couldn't like straighten it out I'm like somebody grab my fingers and stretch them out for me yeah it's no fun but it's not as bad as leg cramps or total body cramps you know
2: gotcha but yeah I mean yeah that was and it was was clear that it was affecting him in the tiebreak in the final tiebreaker how could it not
3: Yeah, Uh, it's so funny, Uh, during that changeover, and I saw him like down, somebody said he was downing pickle juice and, you know, his other liquids and stuff. And I had no sooner tweeted during the changeover, let it be noted that he hasn't cramped, he's learning. And then Mm -hmm. he started cramping up. But uh, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't tweet it, I xed it, I guess. But um, (laughs) (laughs) but uh, it's it's not, he did his best. He did his absolute best. But it's going to be an issue for him. Um, and and uh, going into the U.S. Open, he really does have to work on um, whatever it is that he can do to manage this. Uh, but yeah, this, this match was just, it had it all. It, yeah. it, you know, it just was incredible.
2: So the needs for the Carlos team, let's see, we talked after Paris, we talked about things like, calming down overall. We talked about meditation. Now we got pickles. You know, this like the shopping list is just, they're just be going to that whole foods in uh, in New York, get all the, all the, things, right? yeah. yeah.
1: I, you know, discipline, how much, how much do you kind of let it rip let you know, go for it versus not. Oh, I,
2: well, I think the tennis thing. Well, okay. This segues to something I wanted to bring up. Coaching? Ask, what do you guys, what do you guys mean? I've never, this, this tournament Cincinnati for me, I don't know if it was the cameras, Or just the prevalence i never heard more of the whole coaches talking to the players uh during the tennis what do you guys each think of that
1: i go ahead gail okay uh so i wish that it was never legalized i don't think i also don't think we have had a fair democratic process to determine whether or not it should be legalized they kind of just did it quietly and hoped that nobody would notice and nobody noticed uh But if it's going to be here, if it's going to be in the sport, which I think that's done, it's going to be part of it. I want to hear it. I want to know about it. I want it to be a part of the television product. Uh, Even so much, I would go as far to say with the language barriers, it would be awesome if we had an AI that enabled us to always know what is being said.
2: Amy?
3: I was a proponent of allowing coaching and making it legal because I'll, I'll give you a great story. I was watching Novak play in Cincinnati several years ago. Let's see, this had to have been circa 2015. And I sat right behind his coach's box. He still had Boris Becker. So I was literally an inch from Boris Becker. It was no different than what I heard today. I mean, it was just a lot of chatter. Um, A a lot of it was in a language I didn't know, but I I assume that it wasn't just encouragement, that there was some directing or advice in there. And um, so now there's a microphone there and and I can hear exactly what I heard that day many years ago in Cincinnati. So uh, my thing is... uh, it's better to have it, you know, fair to everyone, and not some players being penalized for coaching when almost everybody is doing it. Um, Trying to parse out what's encouragement versus what's coaching is impossible. And I am totally with Gil on the other issue of hearing it. I love hearing it. It's entertaining. It draws me in. I could hear um, Juan Carlos Barrero saying to Alcaraz, um, "Trabajas, trabajas. Work, work. Meaning work the point, um, which is exactly the the issue that we're talking about right now. Him not wanting um, Alcaraz to pull the trigger. So it enhanced my knowledge of what was happening. And it what what's funny about the language thing is that." Um, Carlos Gomez, who's in Novak's box, is speaking a lot of Spanish to Novak. So, if you took six years of Spanish like I did, you can kind of make out what's being said in both boxes.
2: Very interesting. I um, I was I didn't like I I didn't like when it was being talked about as kind of a entertainment element. However, I ca- I came to see obviously it could never be policed. So the cat's out of the bag. It's part of the sport. However. I don't like, like, I don't know about you guys. I I wouldn't want to hear someone um, yelling things at me after every, after every other point or even after every game. I I don't care. I wouldn't want that. If you, as a player,
1: Joel, as a player, you wouldn't want that.
2: I would not want that. But if coaching is coaching is to exist, my thought is, okay. You want to do it, do it like the NFL, have them sit on the respective sidelines, kind of like a Davis cup, have the whole friggin' team on the side of the court, have their names be clear let them talk to the player. If you want to figure out some way to occasionally have it be heard by television, that's fine. I guess I want to figure out what that should be. Then make, make it more like the NFL or the NBA. And how, And I want the names. I want I, I, this whole, and, and you know, at these different tournaments, the yelling part where the coach sits. I mean, at Wimbledon, it was very awkward. They're they're up in the player's box and others here and there. And, and the U.S. Open, you guys know the distance of that court and only at, only at one end. Encouragement, coaching, these rules, it's all coaching. Encouragement is coaching, you know, it's all, it's all forms of supporting your player, whether it's let's go or let's go hit the kick serve to the forehand. It's all part of that. So I, I, I find, I find it kind of, um, in this format, kind of like kind of annoying, but the point is interesting. The players, they're not adapting to it. They've been doing it for years anyway. You know what I mean? they just been,
1: uh, there was less, to- I, I know it was always it was happening, but, but less. you couldn't do much. quite as much.
2: No, you couldn't, well, course, you couldn't do any. You couldn't Kill. do anything. No, you, you weren't allowed. Kill.
1: Kill. You weren't allowed to do right. it. But you would do. Look, there is a there is sign language, but it oh. it, it couldn't be it couldn't be so overt as a doll's box. I know there were a lot a of signs.
3: Constant. No, it wasn't. It wasn't signs. It was a constant stream of verbiage.
2: Right. So- I mean,
3: it, it was like yeah, and and you know. Tsitsipas, like all these guys, I mean, all uh, there, there are some, I guess maybe Federer's box was quiet. Um, But I, in my experience, there's a lot of verbiage from coming from the coach's box. I think if it's
2: going to be part, it's going to, if it's going to be part of the sport, then make it something other than this kind of like put the coach way up there. It's like, like I've heard stories about coaches on field courts sitting next to fans and the fan, Oh, you're, you're here coach. Oh yeah, how's it going? Uh, kind of coaching my player here? You know, can you imagine that in an NFL or NBA game? Um, the the coach sitting in the stands with the people. I mean, yeah, I'm sure Bill Belichick at the new, he would go for that. He'd enjoy. So if we're gonna do it, if we're gonna make it a legitimate part of a professional sport, then give it every possible chance to be legitimate. I want the I want everyone on that team's names on their back. So I know that this guy is, you know, Smith, the trainer, that one's the physio. I want all of that. If we're gonna do that. Bring well, it that, up.
1: That's yeah. It's it's that's music to a broadcaster's ears because a lot of the it's times to
2: a fan to a spectator's ears. Yeah, no, I,
1: I know, but I'm just saying. Even it, when you're broadcasting a lot of these tournaments, you'll see some unfamiliar faces sometimes in the box, and there is no indication of who they are. I, you know, there have been some tournaments that have sent out the official list, but uh, many do not, and it it it's a disservice to everybody. But the point, the one other point that I'd want to make on this is you do need to know when to pull back i think as a as a coach and a player and when to just kind of let it be especially when things are working but i feel like the constant dialogue uh between alcaraz and ferrero when things aren't working of what do you think my return position should be uh has been a big one or where should i lean on the serve or i think there was one point in the match where ferrero i know said don't uh don't let him hit forehands. And I think that's mm-hmm. because when you give Novak forehands, that's when he can finish the points easier. And they were trying to make him tired. I, I, I think that players are at a disadvantage when they're not taking advantage of these new liberties. And there should be that kind of back and forth.
2: Let's mm-hmm. see right now, as long as you're at one end of the court. And it was just like, it's like that is so that is so non professional sports. Do you know what I mean it's like I, I understand
1: what you mean. Yeah.
2: This the court. Yeah. And and then there are other things like uh how it goes in the course of the match. You know, John Wooden prepared his UCLA basketball team so well that he didn't like calling timeouts and he didn't like to talk to him during the games. I trained you, I coached you, go play. But that says I get it in tennis. I see the value, I see the value in the input, but and I see the things that Ferrero is saying, but it's like yeah, one court of the one part of the court, as long as you're at this part, but the other part I can't what are you gonna or, or do you put do you put a plant do you put a friend in another corner and he yells out a code word he yells out a code word which is 37 and that means don't give him any forehands
3: let's it- just lift the lid on that too i mean that's ridiculous i think that was like a way to sort of trial this, you know, so people wouldn't get so upset. Well, you know, let's, and and also the noise factor and the distraction factor, which has come up during matches, but I I'm in favor of just lifting the lid on
2: everything. I want them on the I want them on the court. Then I want them more like Davis cup. I want it more like Davis cup. And it's, and it's a little bit more and it's changeovers. And it can also be during rallies too, because he's close up to the court have put for on the court. Let him, do let him get the text from someone else that let himself, okay, in, this, in, the, in the player box, it'll be like the press box in football. And someone else can see the pattern from there and, and send for the text message that says, uh, you know, forehands aren't looking good. You know what I mean? But I, I
3: just the- think that. Tennis has an inherent problem when it comes to fans and viewership. And that is the time between points and the time between first and second serve. Because as a fan and a viewer, if that time gets too long, I look at my phone, I look down at my phone. And, and it's just, it's that's the way that we are now. So we as broadcasters, have to fill that time with something compelling. And if there's a coaching conversation going on, that's something to talk about. It's something to see. It makes it exciting. It makes it less likely that I'll look down at my phone and miss the next point.
2: How much time in between football plays? Um, A lot,
1: a lot. But to Amy's point, there's this whole rhythm in in a football telecast and we shouldn't dwell on this or
3: replays. A lot of
1: people don't care. American yeah, football. Every single play is replay, replay, replay analysis, analysis, analysis. And, uh, there it's, uh, it feels a little bit less samey than tennis points inherently. There's right. more, there's more characters there's, on the field. There's
2: 22 people on the court on the, yeah. on the field. Pardon me. Right. right. People. There's, there's something you can always have a camera. Oh, look, this receiver is open or look at this guy You know, There's many other little mini stories that can be told other than just the two guys who played a point. Yeah. Yeah.
3: But there I, I just I mean, thought Alcaraz hit an amazing shot to win a game that I didn't even see a replay of like ever. I, I had to take my TV back during the break to to see that um, there's not enough replays and there's not enough uh, tight facial reaction from the hero it's called the hero shot if you won the point or what i call the anti-hero um i wanted to see reactions of alcaraz and djokovic's face when they lost that crucial point and instead i get a lot of cutting to the crowd and stuff like that um it's just my opinion that we could um innovate the way that we direct and produce tennis telecasts
1: fair enough uh and it'll always be the players out there having to not only execute, but deal with the emotional and the mental ups and downs. And I, I think this match, as spectacular as it was in, in the end, one of the most significant things for me was just Novak not quitting when he when he was sick out there. Uh, and I think, once again, it was a heart of a lion kind of display where there was suffering and there was a lot of reasons to quit and the quit just never really came. It was bide my time, try to stay in this, give it a hundred percent. Yeah. Our three have won a lot of matches that way, huh?
2: They have. Well, this was, this was, let's put the majors aside for a sec. Um, This is right up there. I mean, this is as a, as a non-major. I mean, this is incredible. I mean, Novak again, remember he's 36 years old first tournament back since wimbledon
1: and he reacted what was your thought what what's your take on this amy he reacted like he uh-huh. won a major
3: you know <laughs> ripped the shirt i mean if you're lacoste i don't know if you're happy or what you're i guess you're happy um I kept thinking, Novak, you don't need this. You've won all the Masters, won thousands twice. I mean, don't hurt yourself, burn yourself out. But that's not his mentality. His mentality is, doggone it, if I'm out here, I'm going to, and I don't care if I'm sick or I'm, you know, whatever, I'm going to figure out how to win this match. I'm going to see if I can figure out a way out of this situation to win this match it, it's just the the sublime competitor that he is
2: oh absolutely but also the uh the celebration look he he'd lost the Wimbledon final he's playing back it's a four-hour match it's the match itself i think he was you know, he did it he celebrated in a reasonable kind of way it wasn't uh it's was fine it's fine i thought it was, it was great i thought why yeah. you're, you're thinking you're thinking you are thinking
1: I agree but that it's he, great. He I, I agree that it's great, off. but it certainly wasn't. It certainly wasn't normal. I mean, no. I don't think he's ever. Re- he's probably never reacted that way to winning a Masters one thousand.
2: A Masters, but it's not about a Masters one thousand. It's about Carlos Alcaraz. I agree. Beating Carlos Alcaraz, it's about being the guy who beat me in the Wimbledon final. He wouldn't have done that if he'd beaten Hircach. I
1: I agree, but I also think yes, the Alcaraz factor. Also, the this was a really really hard experience for me. And yes. yeah. I went through a lot to win this match. Yeah. A lot of uncomfortable moments, and it just all, you know, he got into that mode where, because of how painful it was, it meant that much more in the end.
2: I want to bring up something about Cincinnati that um uh, we talk about others being like the fifth slam Indian Wells because Indian Wells in Miami was once thought that way too, because they they stand apart at different times from the majors. But i've watched I've been watching the Cincinnati tournament for forty years and its proximity to the US Open makes for some incredibly high quality tennis. You can't you're not going to call it a fifth slam and I think that that fifth slam stuff to me is kind of silly anyway, but as a as a drama, as significance because it's, it's the way I sometimes think about Rome leading up to Roland Garros. I won't say that about the grass build up because there's not enough time or the Australian build-ups, but the ones where there's an, an ample time like you remember the 06 Rome Federer Nadal final that was just an unbelievable match that um the buildup yeah. towards a major and the form is peaking. And you see how well these guys are playing the quality of the tennis. Um, I love Indian Wells, but there's a little bit of the spring training atmosphere to that. And if it's that's for American baseball. And if it uh if it works out well, it's fine. But it's like I, I and there's great tennis there, but it's not like I see losers there being like having that suffer the way this this had some massive drama i mean this is up there with like not exactly davis cup but this is one of the best two out of three set matches you'll ever see
1: incredible preparation for both djokovic and alcaraz i know it felt very different at the end of the match for them alcaraz you know brought brought to tears really but i mean it is exactly i think what they both want in order to be at their best a week from now with the start of the U.S. Open. That'll do it for this episode of three. Remember, we're available on all podcast platforms. We appreciate it if you leave a rating and a review on Spotify and Apple. And if you're watching on YouTube, like, comment, and subscribe. We will see you next time on the next episode of three.